All right, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 1, uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning as we make our way into the text today. Uh, last week, of course, we began our study of the book of Titus. And while there are several themes uh, in this book, the main point that Paul is getting across to Titus is that there needs to be order in the church. That's why we've kind of entitled the whole uh, study of Titus order in the church. And we saw last time that Titus is going to bring order to the church by appointing elders to lead the individual churches on this island of Crete where he is. And he's going to teach them uh, what they ought to be doing as believers in a fallen world. And we saw that, uh, much of that at least anyway, in our scripture reading in Titus chapter 2, where he gets to some very uh, specific teachings, some very specific things that are uh, very contrary to what we are uh, faced with in the world in which we live in today in the 21st century, which just shows you so, so clearly and so perfectly how the, the Word of God is truly eternal. And it is applicable to every person in every time of existence that there is. And uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, so we'll just move on. Uh, today, the title of our message is God cannot lie, even though you don't see it up there. It didn't change. Is it on my, uh, my thing up there? Is there? There we go. Hardly even noticed it, but it actually did. <laughs> this week we make our way into the text where we're going to see the very uh, foundation of, of why Paul is writing and, and what he's actually writing about. And so the main motivation behind uh, this writing is to teach us about God. Uh, that's basically what the purpose of the Bible is in general, is to tell us about God. That's where we're going to find that uh, through the years, in case you haven't really noticed, uh, we teach through books of the Bible, particularly in uh, the Sunday morning service, but really what we're doing, even though we're studying through various books of the Bible, what we're actually doing is learning about God. We just use the various books of the Bible as, a, as kind of a basis to teach about who God is and what God's plan for the world is and what God's plan for you and for me actually is so that we can learn to be uh, pleasing to Him. And one of the ways that the writers of Scripture reveal God is by talking about His attributes. And Paul does that this morning in pointing out that God cannot lie. One of the, the attributes of God is that He is truth. It says that expressly about Jesus Christ, that He is truth, which is something that is very uh, confrontational in the world today. To make such a bold claim that anything can be truth uh, is a bold claim today, let alone the fact that Jesus Christ is truth. If we as believers in Christ can hold to that, can say it unashamedly, we ought to be saying that Jesus Christ is truth. 
And part of being truth is this fact, as it says in verse 2, that God cannot lie. And this is why we can trust Him and trust His Word. There's very little in this world today that is trustworthy. And that's because, of course, the world is under the grip of Satan, the father of lies. So, of course, everything that we see from the world is going to be a lie. Uh, He lies to Eve in the very beginning. That's why he's called the father of lies. He's introduced to the world through the Bible as being a liar from the very beginning. He lies to us. Uh, He lies to us every time that that he is and the world is leading us to sin, leading us to stray from the truth of of God's word. It's It's a satanic lie. Uh, We lie to ourselves as fallen people. We lie to ourselves about sin. Uh, It's not going to be that bad. Nobody's going to know. Nothing will happen. We can tell ourselves any number of lies about any number of things. But God, on the other hand, cannot lie. And Paul is going to use that for his motivation uh, for writing this letter to Titus. And it ought to be our motivation for believing what it says. So last time, we looked at this introductory material, and we'll kind of repeat these things throughout again. So kind of like in Revelation, uh, we don't want to study a book for two years and not know what it is. Uh, The introductory material really is kind of the foundation, and, and this is what the book is. If we can just remember these things, we'll know what Titus is all about. So, of course, it was written by the Apostle Paul, written to this man, Titus, who was left, we'll see next time, uh, he was left in Crete to kind of set the church in order. It was written after the book of Acts concludes, in Acts 28, that book concludes with Paul being imprisoned in Rome. He was later released And subsequently, Paul uh, wrote this letter as well as two more to uh, Titus. So about 64 to 66, AD 64 to 66 is probably a good uh, range. Where was it written from? Uh, We don't really know. Perhaps Nicopolis in Greece. Paul was was in Greece when he wrote this, either in Nicopolis, perhaps in, in Macedonia. Uh, it is a pastoral epistle, so it's going to be a, have a little bit different language, a little bit different focus than like Romans and Ephesians or First and Second Corinthians letters that he wrote to the church, to churches in general. This one is written specifically to a pastor. It's about order in the church, how to how to set things in order in a church, and we saw that's through appointing elders and teaching the elders teaching the people uh, about godliness and salvation in general. Key passages, we read one of them this morning, uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14. And then our other key passage we find in Titus 3, uh, beginning in verse 3 down through verse 7. And the main point of the letter is that there that there needs to be order 
in the church and, and how to have that. And so this morning, we will look at who Paul actually was. We'll get into what it means to be a bondservant and what it means to be an apostle and these kinds of things a little bit. Why did he write? And then if, there, if time remains, we'll get into our common faith that Paul mentions in verse 4. But we begin with who was Paul? We see that in Titus 1.1. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll just continue reading the whole thing for us. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time, manifested even in his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. So uh, Paul obviously is not familiar with Twitter or X as it's called now, uh, as he, you know, he's, man, you've already blown through your entire uh, allotted number of characters there. He writes in a little bit different manner than we may be used to today, but there is just so, so much packed into what he's saying that, uh, yeah, we, we lose a lot in the way that we uh, kind of communicate in shorthand. It goes. It just goes perfectly with our with our plastic world that we that we live in. Our method of communication. It wasn't that way in the Bible times. So that's why it's good for us to, again to come to church and uh, recage our minds away from uh, you know what are they called uh, YouTube Shorts and Twitter and just the the way that our attention span is taken down to about 15 or 30 seconds uh, and recage it to the Bible and, and think about some things in a, in a little bit more uh, extensive or deep manner. But Paul begins by telling us telling Titus who he is or reminding Titus didn't need to be told who he was. He was very familiar with Paul as we saw last time. He, was, he has been with Paul from very early on in his ministry. Titus went with Paul to Jerusalem the very first time that Paul went there after uh, trusting in the Lord. If you'll remember, we saw that in Galatians chapter 2 that Titus was with Paul when he went up to Jerusalem. So it seems like ah, maybe Paul is writing this down for us 2,000 years later to say who he was. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? After the very first word that tells us who wrote the letter, we don't <laughs> remember verse 2 God cannot lie. The, the word began, the letter begins with the first word saying who the author is. So don't, don't, you can read the critical scholars, but don't pay attention to them when they lie to you. <laughs> like, for example, who the author of this letter is. It's Paul. Paul, the bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word bondservant is kind of the, uh, is the, the, oh, I don't know what the correct term is, but is the nice way of saying slave. Uh, and, and again, it seemed, well, this tra particular translation 
of the Bible, the NASB that I'm reading from, was done in 1995. So times have certainly changed from the uh, first century to 1995, and you know, just kind of tone it down a little bit and call Paul a bondservant instead of saying that he was a slave. The Greek term is doulos, and that is, uh, it's trip- typically translated, or it means slave. And, and slavery and slaves definitely has a, has a, a bad connotation, in, particularly in America and the Western world today. But as we've pointed out, there are actually more slaves today than there have ever been in the world's history. It just so happens that they, the overwhelming majority of them live in, in Muslim countries. So eh, we don't want to talk about that. But at any rate, it does have a, a very bad connotation and a, a negative racial connotation, of course, in America today, but it hasn't always been that way. It wasn't even that way early on in American history. I'm listening to a a biography on Roger Williams, and it speaks of slavery and how the initial, the, the people who came here in the 1600s to America, yes, they were uh, primarily white people, but they all had fear of becoming slaves. Even from the time that they were leaving England, one of the, the main worries that the people had leaving England or leaving Europe and coming to America is that they would be captured by pirates making their way here and sold into slavery. In fact, uh, John Smith, who was very prominent in the founding of Jamestown, uh, one of the first uh, settlements here in America, was himself a, a slave for a period of time. People actually sold themselves into slavery. They're uh, called indentured servants for a period of time. They would enslave themselves to someone for in order to uh, pay pay a debt or to be able to get to America, these kinds, these kinds of things. And of course, this isn't meant to downplay slavery or taking a particular race of people and putting them into slavery. In a, uh, history has, has already judged that, let alone uh, other, other factors. But it's just to give you a more accurate depiction of this word, when uh, Paul is saying that he is a bondservant, he doesn't mean that God went to a foreign country and put him in chains and took him back somewhere else, and now he is God's slave. That's not at all what Paul is, is picturing here. It's kind of more along that lines of the indentured servant that Paul is, is making reference to here when he says that he's a bondservant. Not that he, not that he is... Uh, paying a debt to God or that that uh, that sort of thing, but he is willingly submitting himself to God to be his slave. He is privileged to serve Jesus Christ. That's what he means here when he when he refers to himself as a doulos, a bondservant, or a slave. And it's it's actually a very good picture of what it means to worship. He is lowering himself. Before God, he is willing to serve God with his life. That's what worship really is all about. And of course, as we've mentioned before uh, numerous times, uh, we have such a skewed view of, of worship. And gee whiz, it seems like Satan just kind of turns worship into exactly the opposite of what it is. Have you noticed the words of a lot of the quote-unquote worship songs today? 
they have a lot of eyes and a me and my and, and this kind of thing. It's turning the focus to ourselves and, and our problems and, and our viewpoint rather than looking to the one that we are actually worshiping, which is God. We don't worship ourselves. We, we worship God, of course, and that is what Paul is doing. Uh, one, one great way to worship God is to serve him. And that is precisely what uh, the Apostle Paul is doing here. He refers to himself as a bondservant. This voluntary servitude, if you will, to the Lord Jesus. That's who Paul is. And he's also an apostle of Jesus Christ. There it says, in verse 1, and there, there could be some misunderstanding about this term. Uh, there, and that could arise, I mean, if we want to give the benefit of the doubt to people, that could arise from some of the, there's a couple of different uses of the term in the Scriptures. One is sort of a general sense. The word apostle, it literally means one who is sent out, is, is what the term is. And in Greek, secular writing. It can also be used and mainly was used by the Greeks to refer to a ship that was at uh, anchor or in a port that is ready to be sent out. It's ready to go. It's loaded up, ready to be sent out on its mission. They would use this term apostolos to refer uh, to a ship. It can also refer to the captain of a ship that's ready to be sent out. Same he can, could have been referred to as an apostolos, but it has some uh, general uses. We see people who aren't one of the 12 referred to in the New Testament, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Of course, they they are referred to as apostles, but it's also used of people like Barnabas, who wasn't one of the 12. So if we want to give the benefit of the doubt to, to people who use this term today, say that I'm an apostle or that kind of thing. It does have some general uses in the scriptures to just refer to people who are being sent out on a mission. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the times people using this term apostle or also say that they are in the line of apostles. This was uh, a, a big Uh, topic. We don't really discuss it so much today, but in the times of the Reformation, this was a very big deal. Uh, Is the Pope in the line of the apostles? This, of course, is what the the Catholic Church would claim, that the the Pope is somehow in the line of apostles and has this apostolic authority. And that's where we kind of get into trouble with our use of this term. Paul is using this term apostolos here or apostle in the in the specific sense. He's saying that he is an apostle with a capital A. He is one who has been commissioned by the Lord and sent out with the gospel message. And now that of course when we get into this, uh well we'll just look at the the actual sending out of the apostles and where this term really gets its foundation from, Matthew 28, 18. After the Lord's resurrection, of course, before he returned 
to heaven uh, in his risen body, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them, the disciples, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the official sending out of the apostles to carry out this mission. They, they are now officially, just like that ship in port, it's received the last of its cargo, it's ready to go out. That's where this uh, idea comes from, Matthew 28, 18. And uh, we see this as well in, in the upper room. Jesus, of course, he doesn't just spring things on people. He's been teaching them about this for, for most of his ministry. We saw in our study of Luke that he warned them over and over and over again that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to die. He's going to, in fact, rise again on the third day. And they're going to have to uh, carry on this mission and this ministry of the Lord after he's gone. And he explains it again in the upper room discourse. John 15 and verse 16, Jesus says to the 11 who are in the room there, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give you. Jesus Christ is the one who appointed these specific people to be his apostles. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, that the apostles in their teaching are the very foundation of the church. So there is no one who is alive today who fits the qualifications of an apostle with a capital A one who is directly commissioned by the Lord, sent out by the Lord, wrote down Scripture for us that we have in our Bibles as the very foundation of the church that could, have, that could be verified by the hearers in the first century that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And so their teaching could be lined up perfectly with what Christ said because this original audience, guess what? They heard both. They heard Jesus and they're hearing the apostles. They could line it up perfectly. Just like the foundation of a building. And that's what Paul refers to there in Ephesians chapter 2. And so now the question comes up, well, is, is can Paul really do this? Can he claim to be an apostle? As it says there in, in verse 1, is he using the general kind of, yeah, he's one that's sent out by the Lord, or is he using this specific term, specific use of the term apostle? And so there's some debate about whether or not Paul is actually one of the 12, or should it be Matthias? Matthias was appointed in Acts chapter 1. If you'll remember, the apostles, disciples gathered together like, oh, there's only 11 of us now. Judas is dead. uh, Turns out he really wasn't one of us. Uh, And so we need to replace Judas. And they go through the process of, of drawing lots, which may 
seems strange to us. It wasn't strange at all to the Jewish people. It was, it's part of their law, part of their uh, tradition. And so the lot fell to Matthias, and he was named as the 12th there in Acts chapter 1. And then along comes this guy, Paul, who is designated as an apostle by the Lord. He received his gospel from the Lord, if you remember. Again, Galatians chapter 1, Paul recounting his, his life and, and where he comes from, where he got his gospel, where he got his training and this kind of thing. And uh, it came from the Lord. Uh, he's, we see personally sent out by the Lord to the Gentile nations. Very, very clearly, uh, he fits with this idea of an apostle with a capital A, even though it doesn't have a, a, a uppercase A in our text. Uh, that's okay. When it was originally written down, it was probably all in capital letters. So this is, again, a, a translation that we have here. Uh, so uh, you are free to believe whatever way you want to on that. Is Matthias the 12th? There's a lot of good people who, Arnold Fruchtenbaum for one, I'm pretty sure he's the one, he believes Matthias. He's uh, was chosen by the Lord. They drew the lots. It fell on Matthias. He is the 12th. Uh, okay, that's great. Personally, I lean towards Paul being the 12th. Maybe that's because I'm a Gentile and Paul is, he's my apostle. Uh, chances are he's your apostle as well if you're a Gentile person. I find it fascinating to uh, think about kind of our my Christian lineage and the people that from Christ to the apostles, and you could trace the lineage. This is the way uh, Christianity works, just like our own birth can be traced all the way back to Adam, because he is our, our common father. We all come from Adam at some point. Uh, you could trace your Christian lineage from the person who heard it from uh, Jesus himself, to the apostles and down through the, these many centuries to the person who told you about faith in Christ and you believed, there is a very high likelihood that we as Gentile people would be traced all the, right back to the apostle Paul as being the one who uh, brought the gospel to us. And uh, that... I find that kind of fascinating. And maybe that's why, which doesn't have a whole lot of biblical uh, <laughs> backing up. <laughs> but I, I, there is biblical evidence as well for Paul being the 12th, and, and it's kind of not perfectly clear. And so feel free to believe whichever one you want on that. But one fact of the matter is that Paul was an obedient believer in Christ. He was one who followed his calling. He heard the calling from the Lord and he did it in spite of hardships. Uh, he, he mentions them often. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, he mentions some of the hardships that he went through in his life. We have the tendency to kind of get down. Uh, Personally, I, I can uh, get overwhelmed sometimes with all the things that I've got to do. I've got too much to do. And we count that as a hardship. 
and get discouraged and oh, I don't want to do it. There's too much to do. I don't want to do it. That's uh, uh, Paul never. Paul doesn't ever mention that as a hardship. He mentions actual hardships like uh, being stoned to death <laughs> in cities where he goes to uh, give the gospel, being shipwrecked, being whipped, being imprisoned. Those are actual hardships. Not having food, not having, uh, being cold, being in the ocean for a night. That's an actual hardship. Uh, and he didn't get discouraged. He kept on doing the things that the Lord had for him to do. And he was an example to those who heard him in his obedience. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Uh, again, Paul, he certainly is not a 21st century uh, person. Everybody gets a prize today. Uh, only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. <laughs> he wants to win. How about that? Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. Same word, doulos. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul lived his his life in such a way that he backed up what he said. He was an example to the people of, in godliness so that his word would, would have effect. That they wouldn't uh, say, oh yeah, Paul says this, but I know the real, I know the real Paul. He's not like that. He's not like that at all in real life. And that, that causes real damage to, to people and their view towards God and his his word of course it isn't just this isn't just important for apostles it's important for everyone for every believer and he did it by faith walking by faith moment by moment galatians 2:20 paul says i have been crucified with christ and it is no longer i who live but christ lives in me and the life which i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. This is the Christian life, lived by faith, moment by moment, trusting in the Lord and His provision. And of course, we are sinners. Part of, of living by faith or walking by faith is confessing your sin. You know that you're going to fall. And when you do, you keep short accounts with the Lord and confess it. To him, and there's more on on Paul's obedient obedience here to come in this section. Why did he write? Notice the second part of verse one: for the faith of those chosen of God, in the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago but at the proper time manifested even in his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Notice who this writing is for. It is for the faith of those chosen of God. Or as I have here, for the faith of 
the choice ones of God. And we will we'll get into that uh, word there here shortly. But the, you'll notice there is a little uh, superscript there. If you have the uh, NASB next to the word for, that is because this is uh, the word kata is the Greek term there. And we see it several times uh, in in this in these opening verses, that word kata is there. And it can have, uh, that's, the English kind of loses something in the translation. It's a little, it's more poetic in the Greek than it is in the English. Uh, but it, but it translates in this case for the purpose of that, that is why he is writing. Normally that word kata can mean also, or according to these kinds of things here, it has this, this, uh, kind of purpose of showing why, Paul is writing the letter. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, right from the get-go, he's telling him why he's writing. It is for the faith of those chosen of God. And this is where uh, there can kind of be, people can get up in arms and uh, have big discussions. Oh, uh uh-oh, here we go. Uh, God chose us. He didn't choose others. And this sort of debate that has caused so many problems for so many churches uh, throughout the years. Well, the fact of the matter is that this, the way it reads here, that kind of in the English at any rate, gives us the impression that God is, is making a choice, He's made a choice, and that's just the way that it is, and there's really nothing that we can do about it. He chose us, he chose me to be saved, and uh, my neighbor who kind of lives like the devil, uh, well, obviously God didn't choose him, so you know there's nothing, there's nothing we can do. And obviously that is that's contrary to the Scriptures, contrary to the very idea of the Gospel. And oh, by the way, Matthew 28, 18, Go therefore and make disciples, or as you are going, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And also, there's a little word here, faith, that is uh, easily skipped over. He is writing for the faith of those, or the belief, this isn't uh, the term here isn't referring to a religion or something like that that we'll get into again here shortly. It's re- referring to the fact that they believed. And so what happens when a person believes is that they, they are choice. They are uh, made choice, like a choice uh, cut of meat in the same sort of uh, use or context as that. And that is what this term is. The word that is translated as chosen here is actually is eklektos, and it is an adjective. It is not an it's not a verb. It's not a noun describing a group uh, or that is referring to a group of people or that is uh, referring to I, uh, God's action of choosing. That is not what an adjective is. An adjective describes something, describes a person, place, or thing. And in this case, 
it is describing those who are of faith as choice, choice ones of God. They are of God and are therefore choice, a cut above, similar to the Lord himself. First Peter chapter 2 in verse 4, Peter uses the exact same word and the exact same connotation to describe Jesus Christ himself. First Peter 2, 4, he says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men. He's referring to people, believers, coming to Christ as a, uh, as a living stone, which has been rejected by men. But is choice... Eclectos. You can look that one up in if you have a have a lexicon with your Bible. It, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Peter, he's not just making these things up and then uh, making a bold claim without anything to back it up with. He refers to Scripture. Verse 6, this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone. Same word, eklektos. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Same exact uh, purpose in writing, same exact theme, same exact concept that Peter is using here, uh, same as Paul. Jesus is a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes has faith in, trusts in him, will not be disappointed. The pres- this precious value then, verse 7 of 1 Peter 2, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. So we as people have a choice to make. We have the decision to make. God didn't decide in eternity past that Kurt Obermeyer would have eternal life, uh, and I have personally selected him out of the myriads of people, and Vladimir Putin, uh, the worst possible person on the planet in the 21st century, he, I, God made the choice, Vladimir Putin, oh, you're over here. You are destined for hell from eternity. That is not what is being described here. God did choose that all those who have faith in him will enjoy eternal life. All those who reject him will be crushed by the stone of stumbling, this rock of offense, the choice one, Jesus Christ. That is the choice that is laid before each and every one of us. Will we trust in Christ and his provision for our sins, or will we trust in something else. Our religion, our good works, uh, God doesn't exist, 
God won't really do that to me. Whatever you want to trust in, that's, that's the decision that we have to make. Do we trust in Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection for my sins? Or do we trust in something else? When we trust in Him, we are made choice. We are given the very righteousness of God Himself, of Christ. Christ's choiceness is dramatically, radically, miraculously transferred to us. And we become choice because Christ is choice. And this is a slide, I think, from our, yeah, it's from our Ephesians study where we kind of broke this down in, in more detail, discussing election, God's appointment plan. That's what we find when we study this doctrine of election. We see that people are appointed to some to some specific role, like Paul was appointed to the role of an apostle. All of the apostles were chosen by God, appointed to something. We as believers are chosen by God to be righteous. That's that's his plan for us, that he appoints all those who will trust in him to righteousness. Ephesians 1.4 Uh, We see that laid out very clearly for us. So I'm not going to go through all of this. Otherwise, uh, we're already well behind schedule. So uh, we can, uh, you can take a picture of that and look up those verses later. These are kind of the three uses uh, that that have this uh, term that come from the same term, eklektos. Uh, uh, eklegomai is the verb that means to make a choice or a, or a selection, uh, various verses where that's used. Ekloge is the, the noun, uh, that refers to that which is chosen or that which has been, uh, designated for something. Romans nine eleven, for example, God appointed that Jacob would be the one through whom the the Savior would come into the world. Uh, yeah, I don't particularly want to go into all the details this morning. Eklektos, that is our one that is today that is translated in English. Uh, Bibles several different ways, most of which are translating it in a way that it it appears as a verb, which is inaccurate. It is actually an adjective describing uh, that many times this choiceness, this idea of being choice or uh, part of a select group that that sort of uh, that sort of idea. Uh, We'll leave it at that for now. Uh, maybe we'll come back to this at some some other point. But notice here that again, Paul is writing this letter for the faith of those who are the choice ones of God, and in addition to that, so that they would have, so that these choice ones would have more knowledge of the truth. Uh, there are things that we can know about God from the world around us. We can know that he is interested in the infinitely small things because he, that's the way he created the world. Things that we can't even see 
uh, going on around us and atoms and electrons, protons, neutrons, all of these kinds of things, and even uh, smaller than that these days, uh, to the, the massive, the universe itself. Uh, this particular week, uh, worked at night and there was no moon for a lot of the nights and I was flying out over Albuquerque and it was the darkest night I, I've experienced in a long time. You could, you could see the Milky Way uh, in the sky and God is in that. Obviously, he created that. He is infinitely big and infinitely small. So there's a lot of things that we can know about God, but we can't know the things that are revealed in the Scriptures. They have to be revealed to us. Even Adam, as the the first person, direct creation of God, he didn't know everything. He had to be told things about the world like, uh, don't eat from this tree. You can eat from every other one, but don't eat from this one. He could not possibly have known that without God revealing it to him. Paul reveals things about God in his writings that we can't possibly know from just looking at the world around us. We need special revelation. And this special revelation leads to godliness. He writes, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. There's another use of that term uh, kata there, that this leads to godliness. The, the special revelation of God's word always leads to godliness. That's what Paul is getting to in Romans 8.28. Notice again how these, this idea of God's uh, election plan, if you will, making people choice uh, is directly connected to godliness. Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's godliness. That's transferred righteousness. That's the same thing that we have here in Titus uh, 1.1. So that. He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these, these whom he justified, he also glorified. That, that our glorification is so, uh, so predetermined. It's so obvious. It's so will happen that he can already uh, describe it as having been accomplished. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Ephesians 1.4, Paul describes all these same concepts. Uh, he chose us in him. Those who are in Christ will be blameless before him. Paul, uh, God determined this before he even created the world. Notice that he also wrote, is writing this, not just for the faith of those who have believed, not just for their knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, but verse 2 also, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages Ago. This is in the hope of 
eternal life. God is unchanging. Uh, Paul isn't writing them some new way that people can have eternal life. It says it has always been that way. God promised it uh, long ages ago. It says that he promised this eternal life, and he hasn't uh, suddenly switched horses in midstream here as we're going through uh, the, our existence. That's a very common mistake. Oh, people used to be saved. Back in the Old Testament times, people were saved by keeping the law, of course. And then uh, now we're saved uh, by being a Christian, by going to church, uh, getting baptized, taking communion, all of these. No, that, that isn't the way that it's worked from our uh, study in Ezekiel. It should be pretty obvious uh, that Mike is going through in Sunday school that if people were saved by keeping the law in the Old Testament times, all those people are excluded. They didn't keep the law. They broke the law. They're saved by faith. And it's always been that way. That's the way God planned it from the very beginning, that those who trust in him would have eternal life. Genesis 15, 6, God made that promise to Abraham that uh, he, it would, righteousness would be credited to Abraham if he would believe. Same thing in Ephesians 1, 4. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us in him, in Christ. Those who trust in God's provision for sin will have eternal life. God made that plan before he even founded the world. And this is our hope in the hope of eternal life. God made this promise. He uses very uh, the same kind of idea in 1 Timothy 4.10. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10. We are striving, we're laboring for this. We have fixed our hope. This isn't, uh, I hope the Tigers win their game today. That's not the kind of hope that we have. It is our confident expectation that God is going to accomplish His Word. He will do this. Uh, and we've fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. All men have the opportunity, and women and children have the opportunity to come to Christ because God shed His blood for all of them in the person of Jesus Christ. But He is the, the uh, Savior, especially of believers, because they've believed it. They have trusted in Him. They have received the eternal life. And we can trust this because God cannot lie. It is, it is against his very uh, nature. It is not something that he could possibly do because he is truth embodied. And Paul expands on this principle of God not being able to lie in Roman in the book of Romans. That's the whole kind of theme of Romans, he lays out salvation for all people, Romans 1 through 8. Oh, but wait, God made promises to, to Israel also. Uh, what about that? Did God lie? 
That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. No, God did not lie to the nation of Israel. He will fulfill his promises to them through Jesus Christ. So now what? We all have salvation through faith in Christ, Gentile and Jew alike. So now what do we do? Romans 12 through 16. We live uh, in obedience to him. Very much the same that we see here in Titus, and in fact, in all of Paul's writings, that he tells us things about who God is, what he has done for us, and now how should we then live. And Paul here is being obedient to his calling. At the proper time, verse 3, manifested even in his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Paul, of course, was commissioned uh, right from the beginning of his life as a Christian, Acts uh, 9.15. He was chosen to go on the missionary journeys in, in Acts 13.2. Uh, Romans 1, 1, he introduces himself as, as being obedient to this calling. Galatians 1, 15, uh, Paul, again, uh, emphasizing the authority behind his apostleship, behind his ministry, his ministry to the Galatians, he says, Galatians 1, 15, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to, in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And here, in writing this letter to Titus, and in fact his entire life since believing in Christ, he is being obedient to this calling. So that's why Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it for the faith of, of believers so that they would grow in their knowledge of the truth, their hope and eternal life. And, oh, by the way, he was uh, just simply being obedient. And then finally, notice verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Titus, we see here, is Paul's true child. He is legitimate. He is there. Uh, he was born the way he was supposed to be, is what the, the use of that term. The, the uh, idea there, uh, when related to human birth, is, is pretty obvious. <laughs> he did it God's way. He uh, uh, as far as a child goes, uh, the two people, man and woman, get married, then uh, they have a child. Uh, that's the way Titus is. He is his true child. He's genuine. He's legitimate. Why? Because he was born again, according to John 3.3. 3. Uh, Jesus, speaking with Nicodemus, describing to him how a person receives eternal life, how he can be born again. Uh, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3, 3. Uh, unless you are born again, you have no hope of eternal life, as it's mentioned in verse 3 of Titus 1. 
Titus did believe. He trusted in Jesus Christ. That's why he can say, speak, Paul can speak of the common faith, my true child in a common faith. And again, there, this word for faith is not referring to, oh, my uh, Catholic faith, my Christian faith, my Baptist faith, my Bible church faith. No, it, it's referring to faith, trust, belief in Jesus Christ. That is, the, that is the commonality among people who are born again, truly Christians. Really, the only Christians are not uh, are those who have trusted in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not that you belong to a certain denomination or go to a certain church. It's that you have trusted in a certain person, the person of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called this common faith. Second uh, Peter one one. Peter begins his letter. Uh, similarly, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not, uh, not even similar, similarly, but exactly the same as Paul did. To those who have received a faith as the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They have received a faith the same kind as ours, Peter says he's writing to. It's people of a common faith, a common belief, a common trust in Christ. That's what it boils down to, and that's what Jesus described later in John 3, verses 14 through 15. Jesus describes how a person can be born again. It is by faith. John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, so that whoever, that's a pretty big word there. That's not uh, exclusive to one subset of humanity. That's anyone. Anyone can be included in the whoever. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That's why Paul uses that phrase. Paul uh, had probably been exposed to uh, this same idea. Of course, he had been exposed to this same idea, not that John was written. I think John was written much later than Paul's writings, the gospel of John anyway, but the ideas were there. Uh, Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That's why we see that phrase in Ephesians so often. In him, in Christ, we have all of these spiritual blessings. We have eternal life. We have the hope of eternal life. We have the hope of godliness or the means by which we can have godliness in this present life. And certainly in our future life, we have it guaranteed to us. It is in him in Christ, and we, go, we come into Christ by believing in him, having this common faith that uh, Titus had as well. Trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And then finally, in these verses, Paul uh, offers grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, this making it very much like every one of Paul's letters, that uh, another piece of evidence that Paul is the one writing this is that he offers grace and peace 
to Titus. Now, the King James Version includes mercy. I think it says grace, mercy, and peace there. And uh, this is what's known as a textual variant. We don't have time to go into all that. But these are the, these are the kinds of variations that we see in manuscripts. Does it say grace and peace or grace, mercy, and peace? Well, guess what? <laughs> Nobody is going to not have eternal life uh, whether if they, they have a Bible that says grace, mercy, and peace, or just grace and peace. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that I'll, uh, well, not every English translation is great. <laughs> the main ones all have this idea of having a common faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Christ who is God, the second person of the Trinity, you will have eternal life. So we, we shouldn't get too wound up about uh, these textual variants, grace, mercy, and peace, or grace and peace. The fact of the matter is that God offers his grace to us, unmerited favor. And when we receive it by way of faith, we have peace with him. That is perhaps the main benefit in this life anyway, that we have now is the fact that we do not, we are not in conflict with the God of the universe. We have peace with him. Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that peace, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. So, uh, this peace can be very transforming for us. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to uh, kind of help us chill out in the world in which we live in. Uh, God is working all things together for good for us as believers in him. So when you're in a traffic jam, when I'm in a traffic jam on the highway and I just want to get to work or I just want to get home, maybe God has put you in that traffic jam so you didn't get in a crash. Uh, two miles down the road. He's keeping you out of trouble. Uh, maybe you get in the accident. Maybe it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Uh, maybe he got you into that accident so that you will slow down, so that you will think more about him, so that somehow you're going to be conformed to his image. You have health issues. Maybe God is working in your life, again, to conform him to, uh, to conform you to his image. Maybe he has somebody for you to witness to at the hospital or the doctor's office or something. Some way he is conforming you to his image uh, in the circumstances of life. And we can trust in that because we have peace with him. God cannot lie. The very foundation of all of his word, this letter in particular, Paul was an apostle. He's a, a obedient servant of Christ. He wrote for the faith of those who have believed in God so they can be increased in their knowledge, have more hope in this world that seems kind of hopeless. <laughs> we can have a, a confident expectation in Christ because we have a common faith in him. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Titus, this ancient text that is so relevant 
still to us today, you are the God of truth. In spite of what the world tells us, that we cannot know truth or that there is no truth, there isn't even anything to know. No, the Bible tells us exactly the opposite, that there is truth, we can know it, and you are it. And through the truth, we can have eternal life. I just thank you for uh, your word that you've revealed to us. Thank you for these people and pray that you would go with them in this week to come. Protect us, guide us in our walk with you. Forgive us when we sin against you and help us to, to be obedient to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.